Join me in welcoming Sharon James. Turn your attention towards the screen behind me. You are beautiful. You are smart. You are funny. You are kind. You are unique. You are worthy of love and affection. You are never too much. And you are always enough. You are precious. You are a diamond, a rose, a pearl, the most stunning of all God's creation. You are worth more than you could ever imagine. Worth more than the numbers on the scale, or the hair product you use, or the shoes you wear. More than how many girls wish they were you, or how many guys wish they had you. More than the price tags on your clothes, or the percentage at the top of your math test, or even the number of followers you have on Twitter. Your worth surpasses all earthly things, because in the eyes of the Lord God, you are loved, and you are worth dying for. Regardless of who you think you are, whether you model in a magazine or you model pottery with grandma, whether you're on the hot list or the not list, whether you're head cheerleader or a high school dropout, whether you're Miss Popular or you've never had anyone you could call a friend, whether you love yourself and love your life or you can't stand to look in the mirror and you feel as if everything in your life is falling apart, whether you're such a winner or you feel like the world's biggest failure, regardless of who you think you are, the reality is, is that you deserve someone who would give up their life for you because you are powerful and strong and capable. Read about the women in the Bible. Esther, Ruth, Martha, Mary. These women changed the world forever. And inside of you, each and every one of you is a woman with that same power and that same strength and that same world-changing capability. And your responsibility is to find that woman and to set that woman free. This is who you are. And any voices in your mind that try and tell you differently are from the enemy. And the next time you hear them, this is what you say. You say, nah-uh, not me, Satan. I am a daughter of the living God, cherished, loved, and adored above all things by the creator of all things for the glory of him who is greater than all things. I am awesome. And please, don't you forget it. God created everything we see in nature. And when the sun set on that fifth day, God said, it is good. 
But on the sixth day, he created man, and he said, it is not good for man to be alone. (laughs) And so he created you. He took meticulous care when he created you. He molded you. He shaped you. The actual Hebrew word says he fashioned you. And you've been interested in fashion ever since, so it's not your fault. (laughs) But he fashioned you. And then on the sixth day when the sun set on that horizon, what had been good became very good. You were not an afterthought to God. You were the grand finale of all creation. And after he created woman, he couldn't do any better than that. He took a nap and that was it. And I have something to tell you today. Number one, I am excited to be here. And number two, I do not know how to shape my eyebrows. How many of you have been busy this week? Look at all your hands. We have been busy this week. It's hard being a woman sometimes, isn't it? But you got here and you're looking good. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are looking good. (laughs) One time there was this man. Now, I don't want y'all to think I don't love men. I I, I like men. I love men. Love my husband, Steve, back home. He has an airport ministry, takes me to and fro. But there was this man, and he said he was sick and tired of going to work every day while his wife got to stay home and do nothing. So he prayed. He said, Lord, I go to work every day and put in eight hours. My wife gets to stay home, and and I want her to know what I go through. Can we please just change places for one day? Sure enough, God in his infinite wisdom, the next day the man woke up as a woman. (laughs) He arose, he cooked breakfast, he awakened the kids, he set out their school clothes, he fed them breakfast, packed their lunches, drove them to school, he came home, he picked up dry cleaning, took it to the cleaners, stopped at the bank, made a deposit, went grocery shopping, he drove home and put the groceries away. Then he paid the bills and balanced the checkbook, he cleaned the car, the cat's litter box, he bathed the dog and it was already 1 p.m. Then he hurried to make the beds, he did the laundry, he vacuumed, he dusted, he swept, he mopped the floor, he ran to the school to pick up the kids, he got in an argument with them on the way home, he set out their milk and cookies, he got them organized to do their homework, he set up the ironing board, did his ironing while he watched television. Then at 4.30 he began peeling potatoes, washing vegetables for salad, breaded pork chops, and snapped fresh beans for supper. After supper he cleaned the kitchen, ran the dishwasher, folded the laundry, bathed the kids, and put them to bed. It was 9 o'clock and he was exhausted. And even though his daily chores were not done, he was expected to go to bed and be romantic. (laughs) Which he got through without complaint. (laughs) The next morning, he said, Lord, I don't know what I was thinking. I was so wrong to envy my wife being able to stay at home all day. Please, oh, please, Lord, let us trade back. Amen. And the Lord, in his infinite wisdom, said, My son, I feel like you have learned your lesson, and I will be happy to change things back to the way they were. But you're going to have to wait nine months because last night you got pregnant. You know, sometimes our days do not turn out like we thought it would. Amen? How many of you had a day that has not turned out like you thought it would? Let me ask you this. How many have had a life that has not turned out like you thought it would? Amen. Man, I have too. And what we're going to do this weekend as we're looking at transformed is we're going to look at a man whose life did not turn out the way he thought it would. 
and his name is Moses. And if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Exodus chapter 3. What do you do when life throws you a curveball? Something just comes out of the blue. And life doesn't turn out like you thought it would. How do you remain that confident Christian woman and have that radiant joy in your life? Well, when we meet Moses in chapter 3, let me go back up a little bit and tell you how he got to where he was in Exodus chapter 3. When we open our Bibles up to Exodus chapter 1, we see that God's chosen people, the Hebrews or the Israelites, they're called both, they were in slavery under the Egyptians. They were in bondage under the Egyptians. And the Hebrew nation had really grown a lot since Joseph had brought his family to Egypt. So much so that the Pharaoh said, we're going to make them slaves. But see, the harder he oppressed them, the more they grew and the stronger they got. Do you know that'll preach, right? Because what the devil means against you, God's going to use it to make you stronger. He said, there are too many of these Hebrews. We're going to, this is what we're going to do. We're going to kill all the Hebrew baby boys. We're going to let the girls live. But all those boys have to be thrown into the Nile. Well, there was a woman, and her name was Jacobed, and she had a baby, and he was beautiful. And she hid him for about three months, but then she knew she couldn't hide him any longer. And she obeyed that Pharaoh, and she threw him in the Nile. But first, she made him his own personal little basket. Actual Hebrew word is ark. She made him a little ark, and then she put that baby in the Nile and prayed that someone, anyone, would come by and save her baby. And who should come by? As God answered her prayer exceedingly abundantly, more than she could ask or think, but the Pharaoh's daughter. Walking by that river, heard that baby crying in that basket, asked her servant girl to bring that basket to her, pulled back the covers, and there was this little baby, and she fell in love with him at first sight, adopted the baby. She's the one that named him Moses, which means drawn out of water. And Moses got to be raised in the Pharaoh's household. He lived a life of privilege. It tells us in Acts that he was a man who was powerful in speech and action. But something happened to Moses when he was about 40 years old. He had a little bit of a midlife crisis. At some point, he found out that he was not an Egyptian, but he was really a Hebrew. Now, we don't know how that happened. We know that Charleston Heston found his baby blanket in the Ten Commandments, and the cat was out of the bag. But somehow, he found out that he was really a Hebrew. So he came up with this plan that he was going to save his people. God didn't call him to the plan. He came up with it all on his own. And listen, anytime we come up with a plan all on our own and we hadn't been called by God, it's probably not going to work. And his plan failed miserably. His people didn't, didn't trust him. They didn't appreciate him. They made fun of him. The Pharaoh was out to kill him. And he failed at his plan and then he bailed. Anybody ever failed in your life and bailed? And he ran, ran to a place called Midian. And he lived in the wilderness. He married a girl named Zipporah. He joined the family business taking care of sheep. And when we meet him in Exodus chapter 3, he's now 80 years old. 40 years have passed. And he's on the backside of the wilderness. Did you know, ladies, that sometimes you have to be on the backside of the wilderness for God to get your attention? And if you feel like tonight that you're on the backside of the wilderness, that's okay. That's not a bad place to be. Because God has you here to get your attention. And God wanted to get his attention. Let's look in Exodus 3, verse 1. 
Well, let's start in verse 3. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jephro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight and why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. When God saw that he had his attention, God called out to him. Sometimes God is just waiting to get our attention. Now I want you to notice here, Moses is out there minding his own business, taking care of the sheep, and God starts to speak to him through a bush. Now listen, God didn't speak through a rose bush or rhododendron or an azalea bush. God spoke through a dried up, old, gnarly, desert, tumbleweed kind of bush. Because when God chooses to speak through something or someone, any old bush will do. Amen? Any old bush will do. And that gives me great hope. God begins to speak to Moses. Moses turns aside. And in verse 5, God says, Do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. Turn to your neighbor and say, God sees. sees. He said, I have heard them crying out because of their slave driver. Tell your neighbor, God hears. hears. He said, I am concerned about their suffering. Tell your neighbor, God is concerned. He said, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. Tell your neighbor, God rescues. I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Parasite, Hivite, and the Jebusite. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Don't you know all this was sounding good to Moses? I mean, this is what he wanted his whole adult life. God sees, God hears, God is concerned, God rescues Sounding good. I imagine his heart was just really beating, don't you? Until God said the next sentence. So let's look at verse 10. And then God says this to Moses. It rocked his world. He said, now go, I am sending you to the Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. I imagine Moses was like, whoa, this is not what I had in mind. Not what I had in mind. He began to argue with God. Try to convince him he had the wrong guy for the job. Have you ever prayed about something and God said, I'm going to answer your prayer and I'm going to do it through you. And you're like, whoa, I wanted you to do it, not do it through me. And he began to argue. And listen, he asked God some important questions in these arguments. And at some point, God's going to call you to go through maybe a trial or a tribulation Maybe he's going to call you to a terrific opportunity. And ladies, you're going to need to answer these same questions for yourself that Moses had to answer when he was with God at the burning bush. The same questions. If you want to be transformed into the, God, to the woman that God wants you to be and to do what he has called you to do, then you need to know the answer to these four questions. We're going to look at one of those questions tonight. And the very first question, the very first objection In Exodus 3.11, God 
Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? In order to be the transformed woman that God wants you to be, you have to know the answer to the question. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Who am I? Who am I as a child of God? Who am I? You know, for the longest time, I had no idea who I really was. I was raised in eastern North Carolina in a little town called Rocky Mount. Anybody know where Rocky Mount is? Y'all know where Rocky Mount is because you've been down I-95, right? You saw the exit. But let me tell you, when I was growing up, I-95 was not there, and you could not get there from here. (laughs) Little town called Rocky Mount. It's a pretty little town at the time. Right now, I imagine the azaleas are blooming, dogwoods are blooming. We lived on a nice street, pretty little house. My father was a businessman. My mom had her own business. And we looked like a nice little typical American family. I had a brother, five years older, two kids. We had a collie dog that was named, of course it was, (laughs) collie dog named Lassie. But there was a secret behind the door of that pretty home. You know, some pretty homes can have ugly secrets, right? The secret was my dad had a terrible drinking problem. And when my dad would drink, he would get drunk. And when he would get drunk, he would terrorize our home. And he would yell and he would scream and he would curse and he would swear. And he would beat my mom. And he would hit my mom. And my mom was a bitter, angry woman and she would hit him back. And I remember going to bed at night just terrified pulling those covers up and praying that I could hurry up and go to sleep so I could shut out what was going on in that next room. I had a little jewelry box in my bedroom when I was little, and I would get up in the night when I'd hear all that screaming, and I would turn a little key in the back and open the lid, and a little ballerina would pop up. Remember those? And I'd want to be wherever that ballerina was. I grew up feeling that nobody cared about me, nobody wanted me, nobody loved me. I was constantly told... I was ugly, that I couldn't do anything right. And I grew up with like a grid system over my mind of inferiority, insecurity, inadequacy, just totally worthless. But God didn't leave me that way. Don't you love those words about God? But God, and I know most of you could get up here and tell a but God story too. God didn't leave me that way. There was a woman in my neighborhood. It was my little redheaded friend Wanda's mom. And I began to spend a lot of time down on that next block when I was about 12 years old. And I began to spend time at their house because I knew there was something different about them. Now, honestly, I thought her mom was a little bit odd because she would walk around the house singing little praise songs. And she talked about Jesus like she knew him personally. That was really strange. Now, listen. Our family, as bad as we were, with the alcohol, pornography, gambling, my father had affairs, you name it, went on at my house. But as bad as we were, we went to church on Sunday. Because that's what good Americans did. And we played the game, sometimes fighting all the way. But I started going to church with the Hendersons, and I saw there was something different about their church. And there was a lot of people in their church that talked about Jesus like they knew him personally and I began to see there was a big difference between having a religion in your life and having a relationship with Jesus Christ now listen not a denominational issue this is the same denomination one was just very politically correct one talked about Jesus and preached the word of God and I wanted what they had see in my little girl heart even though I was so afraid of my daddy 
I wanted a daddy who loved me. I wanted a daddy like the one I, I saw dropping their little girls off at school in the morning and walking through the park holding their hand. I wanted that. And then Mrs. Henderson began to teach me about a heavenly father who loved me. She started a Bible study in the neighborhood for teenagers, and I drank in every word she had to say about it, who that Jesus was. See, I learned something over that two-year period I, I spent with her. Um, when I went to church with them, they called me a sinner. Now, they didn't say that to my face. You'll be glad to know that. But when the preacher talked about being a sinner, I knew he was talking about me. And I learned that I, I didn't become a sinner the first time I did something wrong, that I was born that way. They were all born that way. See, God created us with a body and a soul and a spirit. And when he placed Adam and Eve in that garden, he said, you, you've got all this freedom. One restriction, you may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you do, you will die. And I remember hearing that story when I was little and thinking, well, they ate it and they didn't die. But the truth is they did die. Even though their bodies lived, that death process was begun, but their, and their souls lived, their spirits died. Their spirits died. And it tells us in the New Testament that every single one of us is born separated from God with a dead spirit. Now, you can put makeup on a corpse and it's still a corpse, right? You can fix their eyebrows and they're still a corpse. <laughs> and we try to do all kinds of things to make ourselves feel alive. But we will never be alive until we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's what Jesus meant when he was talking to Nicodemus and said, you must be born again. He was talking about that when you come to Christ, that dead spirit in you comes alive. Comes alive. We know I didn't understand all of that by the time I was 14, but I understood enough. And she sat me down one night after just mentoring me for two years and asked me if I was ready to accept Jesus as my personal Savior. And I said yes, and God did forever change my life. And you know, I kind of muddled through after that. I mean, my parents were still a mess, and I'm going to tell you what happened to them tomorrow. <laughs> but it was a mess. And I knew I was going to heaven after that point. But I wasn't so sure what I was supposed to do until then. Went off to college, met my husband at a Bible study. Y'all, I walked in this Bible study room and there was this guy sitting on the floor, leaning up against the wall. He had on these scruffy jeans and a red flannel shirt rolled up his arms in these chocolate eyes. Woo. He looked like the Christian Marlboro Man. Anybody old enough? Remember the Marlboro Man? Yeah. But he had a Bible in his hand instead of a cigarette. And I said, I'm going to marry that man. Three and a half months later, we were engaged and that was 35 years ago. <laughs> So I married him quick. Then we had a child three and a half years later. I never knew so much love could be wrapped up in one little package. Amen, you moms. Had my little Stephen. Then I started going to Bible studies. Even started teaching a few. But I always felt like there was something not quite right. See, when I, uh, before I became a Christian, I always felt like I wasn't good enough. Was it smart enough? Was it pretty enough? I just wasn't enough. And when I became a Christian, did all those feelings go away? No, they didn't. I carried them right on into my adult life, right on into my Christian life. As a matter of fact, some days I feel a lot worse about myself because now I had a, a new I'm not enough. I'm not a good enough Christian. But I was going to these Bible studies. 
I'd walk in with all those other young Bible study moms with those babies on their hips and those smiles on their faces. Listen, if somebody comes in your church with a smile on their face, that means one thing. They do not have paralysis of the facial muscles. That's all. And I felt so insecure. And honestly, I walked around with the fear that one day I was going to be found out and that people were going to realize that I was not all I was cracked up to be. Well, this, there was a woman in my church, an older woman, who makes me, this makes me a little sick to tell you that because she was about the age I am now. <laughs> but there was an older woman in my church <laughs> who took me under her wing and she began to teach me about who I was as a child of God. Because I couldn't answer that question, who am I? She began to teach me about who I was and what I had and, and where I was in Christ. And she encouraged me to, to make a list about my true identity as a child of God. And I wrote it down. And she wanted me to memorize this list. She said, I want you to put it on your refrigerator. I want you to put it on your mirror in your bathroom. And I'm going to read you some of that list tonight. And listen, I love it when you guys talk back to me. Okay? This is some of the, the verses, some of them that I had written down on that sheet. And if you know Jesus Christ tonight, this is true about you. The Bible says that you are the salt of the earth, that you are the light of the world, that you're valuable to God, you're indwelled by Christ, his spirit lives in you. You're a branch of the true vine, you're Christ's friend, you are chosen and appointed by Christ to go and bear fruit. You are justified by Christ's blood. You are reconciled to God through Christ's death. You are saved through Christ's life. You are set free from sin. You are a slave of righteousness. You are free from condemnation. You are free in Christ. You're a child of God. You're a co-heir with Christ. You're more than a conqueror through Christ. You've been accepted by Christ. You have the mind of Christ. You're a temple of God. His spirit lives in you. You were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified through Christ. Anybody thankful for that? You're also a temple of God. You're part of Christ's body. You're the fragrance of Christ. You're a new creation. You are the righteousness of Christ. You're an ambassador for Christ. You're a minister of reconciliation. You're redeemed from the curse of the law. You are a saint. That's what the Bible says. You're a saint. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Being a saint means you are set apart for holy use. You are a saint. When did Paul write to the sinners in Colossae? Didn't. Always to the saints. You're a saint. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You're adopted into God's family. Amen? Amen. But that's not all. I sound like the infomercial. You're redeemed. You're forgiven through Christ's blood. You're chosen by God. You're sealed by God with the Holy Spirit. You're alive in Christ. You are God's workmanship. Created in Christ to do good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. You're a fellow citizen with God's people. You're a member of God's household. You're able to do all things through Christ who gives you strength. You're a citizen of heaven. You've been rescued from the domain of darkness. You've been transferred to the kingdom of Christ. You're holy in God's sight, without blemish, free of accusation, complete in Christ. You are chosen by God, holy and dearly loved. You're hidden with Christ in God. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. You're an alien and a stranger in this world. You temporarily live in. You're an enemy of the devil. You're forgiven of your sins. You're a child of God. You've been born of God, and the devil cannot harm you, and you are the bride of Christ. Amen? Amen. And that is who you are. Now, that's a lot to put on a name tag, but when God looks at you, that is what he sees. Now, you know, I made that list, 
And I read it out loud and I thought, this doesn't feel right. It didn't sound right. You know what? It made me uncomfortable even saying it. But the question is, is this book true? Is it the truth? There was a bumper sticker a while back and it said, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Remember that? But listen, God said it and that settles it whether you believe it or not. But the word is not going to have power in your life until you do believe it. It's still true. It's still settled. But it's not going to have power in your life until you believe it. In Ephesians 1, 13, it says, You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. When you believed in Jesus, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. It was a one-time thing. Signed, sealed, delivered. You are his. Amen? But you go a little further in verse 18, and Paul was praying for them. He says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Believe, that is a present tense verb. So when you believed in the past, you came to Christ, signed, so delivered, you're his. But when you have present tense believing, when you believe the word of God right now, then you have the power. Then you have the power. It's this incomparably great power, that same kind of power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Why do we have more power in our lives? I think a lot of times it's because we don't really believe what we know. And the devil was saying to me, those verses aren't true about you. You think that's true? Remember all the things you've done in your past? It's not true about you. Listen, the devil cannot keep you from being who God's called you to be. But if he can keep you from believing it, then he's won. Who are we going to listen to? The voice you listen to will determine your destiny. God speaks to me through cartoons sometimes. It is really odd. Well, look at, let me show you this cartoon. We have this cartoon called Pickles in Charlotte, where I, where I live. It's an older couple, Earl and Pearl. I can really relate to Earl and Pearl. So they're on the swing. Let's take a look here. And Pearl says, did you know that the DNA of humans and chimpanzees is 96% the same? Earl says, yes, I know that, but I don't believe it, though. She said, you know it, but you don't believe it? And he says, absolutely, I don't believe everything I know. And I've read that, and God said, that is your problem. You don't believe, really believe, everything you know. You know, we can go to Bible studies year after year, but we cannot believe sometimes everything we know. And until we believe it's true for us, it's not going to have power in our lives. So God brought me to a place in my late 30s. He said, who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the lies you've heard all your life? Are you going to believe me? I said, God, I'm going to believe you. Doesn't feel right. Makes me uncomfortable. But I'm going to choose to believe you. And you know what happened? When I started believing God and acting like God tells the truth, God began to transform me. 
God began to transform my mind. And listen, I would never have written the first book if I hadn't changed the way I thought and allowed God to transform me. How many of us does God have a great plan for you? And yet we're not taking hold of the truth and believing it for ourselves. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, we as Christians many times, we try to change the way we act, right? But you cannot act differently than you think. Can I say that one more time? You cannot act differently than you think. You want to change behavior? First, you've got to change the way you think. You've got to allow God to transform your mind before he can transform your actions. Who are you going to believe? The God who made you? Fearfully and wonderfully, I might add. Or the devil who wants to destroy you? Who are you going to believe? Because, again, the voice you listen to will determine your destiny. And we have to learn how to overpower the lies of the enemy with the promises of God. Amen? Overcome the lies of the enemy with the promises of God. And if you don't answer that question, the one that Moses answered, ask, who am I? If you don't answer it with the word of God, the devil's going to answer it for you. And that's why it's so important for us to know who we are and be able to answer him when he puts those lies in our head. Now let's go back to Moses at the bush here. Who am I that I should go to the Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And what was God's response in verse 12? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Basically, God's answer was, I will be with you. Did you know God's with you all the time? I mean, isn't that a comfort? God is with you all the time. He will never leave you or forsake you. But listen, you've got something better than Moses ever had. Because not only do you have God with you at all times, you have Jesus Christ to the person of the Holy Spirit in you. Moses didn't have that. Not only that, but you are in Jesus. Every one time we read about having Jesus in us in the Bible, there are 10 that says that we are in him. Listen to this verse, John 14, 15 through 20. Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. On that day, when, on that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Now, that could be a little bit of a confusing verse. Let me give you this little illustration here. And I would love for you to go home and do this yourself and have this as a little reminder about who you are as a child of God being in Christ and having Christ in you. I have this little card here. I want you to get a little card when you get home and just write Jesus on it. Then get another envelope and write your name on it. And then put Jesus in you. Okay? Jesus in you, right? Now we get another envelope and it says Jesus. So you put Jesus in you in Jesus. Okay? Then you put Jesus in you, in Jesus, in God. Now look where you are. You are protected. You're protected. Now when we think about Jesus in us, that's like he goes where we go. But listen, when you think about you and Jesus, 
you're going to go where he goes. And that is a much greater picture. Amen? When my son was four years old, we had the, had the crazy idea that it was time to teach him how to snow ski. I don't know what was going on in my mind. It was a crazy thing. So I took him up to Sugar Mountain in North Carolina, and, and I put him in this snowsuit. It doesn't snow much where we live. Put him in the snowsuit. He had on those ski boots, mittens, hat, and then I put him on skis. How crazy is that? He's sliding all around. He's whining. He's crying. He's falling down. Can't get up. I tried to get him to make what we call make pizzas with his skis to slow him down. It wasn't working all day. Going up that rope toe, the little bunny slope, holding on to the rope and holding on this whiny kid, it was not a good day. And finally, I said, okay, we're going to do something different. And we went up to the top of the mountain, and I got that little boy, and I put him in front of me. I said, Stephen, you got to do one thing. All you got to do is hold on. I put him in front of me, and he wrapped his arms around my legs. And I said, you hold on. And then we went. If I went right, he went right. If I went left, he went left. And he was going, I'm skiing, I'm skiing. (laughs) Now, we know he wasn't skiing, right? (laughs) I was skiing. He was just holding on. And that's how I want my life with Jesus to be. I just want to hold on. If he goes right, I'm going to go right. He goes left, I'm going to go left. In him we live and move and have our being. I've written a book called A Sudden Glory, and that's what it's about. Experience God's presence as we live and move and have our being. Not as a once-in-a-lifetime thing, but every day. Oh, ladies, you've got more than Moses ever, ever had. More than he'd ever dreamed of. You've got the Holy Spirit in you. And you're in Jesus. New creation in Christ. Why is this so important? It's important because it was important to God to even tell Jesus. Think about this. After, before Jesus even started his ministry, he went down to get baptized by his cousin John, right? He comes up out of the water, and God says to him, This is my son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Jesus hadn't even done anything yet. You know what God wants me to tell you? You are his daughter, whom he loves, and with you he is well pleased. Because identity always comes before activity. And he wants you to know who you are before you can do what he's called you to do. We've got to transform our mind by understanding who we are. Now, I have a new book that just came out a few weeks ago. I'm so excited about it. Actually, I'm teaching from that book um, this weekend. It's called Take Hold of the Faith You Long For. Now, if you've ever watched a trapeze artist, what they do is they swing out from the platform, they swing back, and usually on that third swing, they'll take hold of something. They'll take hold of another trapeze artist, or maybe they'll take hold of a bar, and that's when they do the flips and the somersaults and the triple twists. But suppose when that trapeze artist grabbed hold of that second bar, he refused to let go of the first one. What would happen? He'd be stuck, wouldn't he? He'd be stuck hanging there in the middle. And that's where so many Christians are today. They are stuck. They're stuck, just like we saw in that survey a while ago. And I believe it's probably more than that we're on that survey because you're probably excited to be here and you're stuck. Stuck. Why are we stuck? Because refusing to let go. I love what Paul wrote. He said in this in Philippians 3.12, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He said, I'm taking hold of everything that Jesus has taken hold of for me and placed 
in me. But in order for us to be transformed and truly take hold of everything that God has placed in us, that God wants to do through us, we got to let go of some things. And what we need to let go of, ladies, are those lies. We need to take hold of our true identity. We need to let go of those feelings of insecurity. Let go of the insecurity. Take hold of our true identity. <coughs> Excuse me. I work with um, two other gals have girlfriends of God. Do we have any gigs in the room? <coughs> Excuse me. Any people that get our girlfriends and God devotions? Well, go to girlfriendsandgod.com and sign up right away. We'll come and have coffee with you every morning. But one thing, uh, Mary is a grandmother. We have three different generations there. And her little grandson, when he um, says the blessing at night, he thought amen was way too boring. So he goes, amen, hallelujah, woo, woo. Let me see if you guys can do that. Amen, hallelujah, woo, woo. That was really weak, but that's okay because it's your first time. But we need to let go of feelings of insecurity and take hold of our true identity in Christ. Amen. Hallelujah. Woo, woo. Awesome. Now let's look at objection number two. First was, who am I? The second one is, well, God, who were you? Exodus 3.13, he says, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. Can you imagine that answer? Moses was probably like, you know, the reception must be really bad on this side of the bush because I got the first part, I am. But I am who? I, I am what? So maybe he went over to the other side and thought, maybe the reception's better over here. What did you say? He said, I am. That's the name. Just I am. Turn to somebody and say, he just is. He just is. I am points to the very present tenseness of God, the isness of God. Have you heard that phrase lately? The isness of God. He never, he's never going to leave us, never going to forsake us. He always has been. He always will be. Nobody before him. There'll be nobody after him. You can't impeach him and he's not going to resign. And I can say that in this city, right? <laughs> it tells us in Hebrews, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that, what? He is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You know, every one of us in this room, at some point, at some time, we're going to struggle with feelings of inferiority and insecurity and inadequacy. Those feelings of, I am not enough. That I am not enough. That I am not blank enough. And you can fill in that blank with a lot of things, can't you? I am not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not talented enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not patient enough. And every time we say, I am not enough, you know what God says? I am. He is the God who fills in your blanks. I am is the God who fills in your blanks. And whenever you think you're not enough of, God looks at you and he says, but I am. I am. He is the God who fills in your blanks. He's the God who fills in your gaps. Remember Rocky 1? I think there's like Rocky 
500 now. I don't know. There have been so many Rocky movies. But if you saw, anybody see Rocky 1? Let me ask you that. Are you old enough? Okay, we've got some, they've seen it. But in Rocky 1, Rocky says to his girlfriend, Adrian, Adrian, you got gaps and I got gaps, but together we got no gaps. (laughs) Well, listen, Rocky got gaps. Adrian got gaps. And ain't nobody going to fill those gaps. Ladies, there's no man going to fill that gap for you. There's no friend that's going to fill that gap. God gave you those gaps because God wants to fill those gaps with himself. He is the God who fills in your gaps. He is the God who fills in your blanks. I want to teach you how to do something tonight. I want you to spot the knots in your life. And then when you spot them, I want you to swat them. Okay, let's do this little practice here. When you say, I am not smart enough, God says, I, oh, no, that was pitiful. <laughs> I'm not talented enough, God says. I am. There you go. When you say, I'm not patient enough, God says. I am. When you say, I'm not loving enough, God says. I am. When you say, I'm not caring enough, God says. I am. When you say, I'm not wise enough, God says. I am. When you say, I'm not strong enough to go through this, God says. I when you say I'm not outgoing enough to do what you've called me to do, God says. When you say I'm not secure enough to do what you've called me to do, God says. When you say I'm not bold enough to do what you've called me to do, God says. I, I want you to spot those knots in your life. Yeah. And I want you to swat them. Because I am is the God who fills in your blanks. We need to let go of those feelings of inadequacy and take hold of God's all-sufficiency. And when the world looks at you and see what God's called you to go through or either to do, and the world looks at you and says, no way, we're going to say Yahweh. Yahweh. That's what the word actually means, I am. It's Yahweh. Yahweh. Many names of God in the Bible. He's Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. Well, Yahweh Rapha, the God who heals. Yahweh Yara, the God who provides. Yahweh Roi, the God who sees. Yahweh Nisi, he is our banner, our victory. But it's that name, I am, the name he said we would remember him through all generations. And when the world looks at you and says, no way, you're going to say what? Yahweh. Yahweh. I was such an insecure young lady. I started learning these verses about who I was in Christ. And then God put me to the test. I've been working as a dental hygienist, teaching Bible studies, working at a crisis pregnancy center. And God said, oh, that's about to change. I had been writing some stories, writing some Bible studies, putting them in a drawer. The drawer became a file cabinet. And God says, I'm getting ready to do a new thing. Everybody felt that before? I'm going to do a new thing. And I just listened. I was telling a friend about it. And a year after I first got that stirring, a year later, somebody said, there's a gal in town that's starting a ministry. I think you need to meet her. So I went and met with a gal named Lisa. She was starting a ministry called Proverbs 31 in Charlotte. And I went on the radio with her and told some of my little stories. And Lisa said, I've been praying for a year for a partner to help me start this ministry. And I think God is saying that you're the one. And I said, Lisa, I don't know anything about radio. My voice is too southern for the radio. My degree's in dental hygiene, for goodness sakes. (laughs) 
I said, but I'll pray about it. Because you see, that's what nice Southern girls say in the South, right? <laughs> we know we're going to say no, but we say, I'll pray about it. But you know what? I did pray about it. My husband and I went off to on a romantic weekend. My son was off at camp. And, you know, the whole time I'm thinking about this ministry. My husband's thinking romance, romance, romance. And I'm thinking ministry, ministry, ministry. (laughs) And one night we went to this beautiful restaurant. It had a little dance floor over to the side. And I was really praying about what to do. And I was walked into this room. And my husband wanted us to go dance, do the foxtrot. We'd taken some bar and dance classes. He said, let's go see if we can remember the foxtrot. And I said, there is no way I'm going to go and embarrass myself in front of all these people. We are not talking about submission this weekend. Sorry, Mississippi. <laughs> but I said, no. I said, but if some other people come up, maybe I'll, I'll go. So uh, first couple came up to the dance floor, and they moved around that room perfectly. I thought, no, I know I'm not going to go. <laughs> then another couple came, steps not so perfect. And so I decided, okay, I'll go now. And we kind of got behind this ficus tree and tried to remember the little <laughs> steps. And then I finally looked up, and I realized no one was looking at me. They were looking at a fourth couple, a fourth couple that was coming on that dance floor. Because, you see, the husband was in a wheelchair. And they came up to that dance floor laughing. She held his hand. It had a glove on it, probably had a skin disease. They were our age, very young. She danced back and forth with her husband. He never left the chair. Danced around his chair, laughing. Then the band played a slow song, and she pulled up a chair beside his wheelchair. They closed each other's, they closed their eyes and swayed back and forth. And I had to bury my face in my husband's jacket so people couldn't see the tears just streaming down my cheeks. And I looked around the room, and there were tears. I looked at the band, and there were tears. And God began to speak to me. He said, Sharon, who moved that room to tears? Was it the couple with the perfect steps? Or was it the couple with no steps at all? But the wife did it for him. He said, you do what I have called you to do. And I will do it for you just like she did it for him. See, God's not looking for perfect people with perfect steps. Any old bush will do, right? God's looking for women who will be obedient, who will believe the word of God and will do what he's called them to do. And he said the same thing to me that he said to Moses. I will do it for you. I will show you what to do. You just have to be obedient. I came home and told Lisa, um, told her yes. And I said, I don't know how to describe it except God sent a lame man to teach me how to dance. God's looking for women who have obedient hearts, who allow themselves to be transformed, transformed into women that he can use, who know who they are, who know who he is, that he's the great I am that will fill in all of your gaps. And who are you? You're God's child whom he loves with you. He's well pleased. You're equipped by God. You're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And you're enveloped in Jesus Christ. Amen? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Woo-hoo. All right. Awesome.